be here. It's good to see um, how healthy the church is after all these years. Um, just popping in every couple of years to, to see you all is um, it's just encouraging. It's encouraging to see so many new faces and just to see the, the life and the vitality still here, especially after a pandemic or toward the end of the pandemic with everything we've been through this year, just to see God still working through your church and still gathering you together and still sending you out on a weekly basis. Um, it's just super encouraging. But let's pray and then we'll um, open up the word together. Uh, Father, we just thank you for our time together. Um, thank you that you've called us here to worship you. You've called us here to open your word. And we're here in faith that when we do open your word, when we gather together, you're with us in a unique way. Um, so we pray that today you would minister to us in all the different places that we are. Um, Lord, we pray as we look at a number of scriptures today that we would see Jesus here, that we would be encouraged by what we see, we'd be warned uh, by what we see and that you would uh, keep us from turning from you because of the warnings that we see in these, in these scriptures. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, we'll be turning around uh, quite a bit today to a number of different passages uh, to, to address really one person's life and one central phenomenon. Um, in, in our day today, there's a new phenomenon where people are very publicly leaving the Christian faith or doing what's commonly called deconstructing in our day. Um, the biblical word for this is apostasy, which means departing from the faith. And today, apostasy has kind of become a performance art, where people will do it very publicly online. Um, they'll they'll uh, decide that they're renouncing Christianity, and so they'll have someone come and actually take a picture. They'll pose on Instagram. They'll they'll announce that they're turning from the faith, and they'll bring their announcement. They they've got a newfound happiness and freedom um, because now they're they're free from it all. And we can look at this and we can feel like something new is going on, but, but walking away from Christianity is not a new thing. What's new is that what used to be a very private thing for most people is now a very public thing for most people, which is what the Internet has done to everything. It's taken all kinds of things that used to be very private and made everything public, made everything for public consumption. And, and just in the last couple of months, there have been stories that have been run uh, as high as in the New York Times of prominent Christian people who say that they used to believe what Christians believe, but are now renouncing it. And so sometimes we can read these stories, we can see these posts on Instagram, and we can think, well, Christianity is falling apart. Um, this, is, this is going to be the end of the church, and we can start to get fearful for the future. Or we'll read those stories, and we can even be, become convinced that this new movement of people leaving the faith represents some kind of evidence that we've believed something dumb. Because those people who are leaving are not dumb people. A lot of them are very intelligent. A lot of them are smarter than us. And so when we see them leaving, we can think, well, what's wrong with me? And so, so our faith could shudder a little bit. But today what we want to do is walk through the story of probably history's most famous deconstructor, uh, Judas Iscariot. And, and this is going to be a little bit more of a narrative sermon where we tell the story of Judas from a number of texts of scripture and draw, draw out some applications along the way. Um, we're going to tell a story of this life that's probably the most tragic life in all of scripture. And if, if you want some blood and gore for, for your Halloween message, it's in this story. We will have that today too. Um, but the goal is to tell the story of this one who seemed to be so close to Jesus, who was such an important part of Jesus' inner circle, but then ran away, but still Christianity survived and thrived in his wake. And in telling the story of Judas in his word, God's going to give us an honest view of some of the realities of life in the Christian community. He's going to give us some windows into the heart of someone who betrays the Lord. 
And he's going to give us these words as a warning to accomplish what he promises to accomplish through his word, that Jesus won't lose anybody that's truly his. Like a good shepherd, he'll use even the warnings of these texts to keep his flock and to keep us from from ultimately and permanently wandering away from him. And so he allows this this story of Judas to be a cautionary tale for us. And if, if we take these warnings to heart, then they'll do their trick in us of, of keeping our lives from becoming the cautionary tales to others. So, so we were introduced to Judas uh, originally in the beginning of the Gospels. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus was about to choose his 12 apostles, his 12 closest followers, um, that would be entrusted with more power than anyone else, more authority than anyone else. They'd be entrusted with his word, commissioned to carry out greater ministry than most people. And in that list of followers of Jesus in Luke 6.16, 6, it, it ends with Judas Iscariot, who it says became a traitor. So Jesus appoints these 12 after continuing all night in prayer to God. They're going to be his closest friends, according to John 15, 15. They're going to be trusted, and among them is Judas. And now that name Iscariot could have a number of different meanings, but the most probable is that his family came from uh, the city of Kerioth, which is a city that the book of Joshua calls one of the uttermost cities of Judah in Joshua 15, verse 25. Um, so, so Judas was probably the one apostle of Jesus that wasn't from Galilee. The, Jesus chose those 12 people to be his apostles, but it seems like this one was from a, a faraway place. And so it's possible that Judas, from the very beginning, felt like a little bit of an outsider among the disciples. Um, but if that's the case, the, you couldn't tell in the way that others treated him. They definitely trusted him. They never saw his fall coming. We know they trusted Judas because they put him in charge of the money bag. And, and you, you trust that guy. You trust the guy who's holding on to all the funds. Uh, and then even later, at the, the end of Jesus' ministry before going to the cross, they're at the Last Supper, and Jesus announces that one of these people is going to betray him, and they all go around the table and they say, is it I? Is it I? Nobody has any idea that it would be Judas. So, so the whole time, it seems like Judas was all in on the ministry of Jesus. Now, these 12 were appointed for a special purpose. In Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, it says, He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So these 12 were called to be with Jesus. They were sent by Jesus to preach. They were sent by Jesus to cast out demons. Uh, Matthew 10, 8 says that they were called to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. And Judas did this stuff. As we read through these stories, there's no evidence that all the other disciples were able to do that, but Judas just couldn't, he didn't have the power to cast out the demon. He just couldn't preach. He just couldn't heal the sick. He was one of the people doing these things. So there was power in his life that was at work, and Judas was very much one of the twelve. Judas was also tested. There was a time in John chapter 6 where Jesus had just taught some very hard things and his followers were bailing left and right. They were leaving. They didn't want to be part of what Jesus was doing anymore. And so so the disciples come to Jesus and they stick with him. And Judas was among the people that stuck with him during that test. Jesus also told his, his apostles that whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So when Judas went off into a town with one of the other apostles to do some kind of ministry, to receive Judas into your house was like receiving Jesus. So when we say that Judas is history's greatest villain, you might assume that people could tell the whole time just by looking at him. 
that they just knew it was that guy. Well, of course it's Judas. He's the guy with the horns and, and who breathes fire. But, but the whole time, he was faithful looking. The only one who knew that Judas would betray Jesus was Jesus. Now, Jesus, the, the Gospels say that early on. In John chapter 6, verse 64, Jesus said, There are some of you who do not believe. And then he says, For Jesus knew from the beginning who, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So Jesus always knew. And that's important as we tell this story of Judas, to know that Jesus knew all along who Judas really was. Everybody else was shocked when Judas fell, but not Jesus. Everybody else after Judas fell was wondering how could it ever be him, but Jesus wouldn't. Jesus didn't wonder. He knew. Now, one of the, the faith-shaking components of people leaving the faith is, is that I think in theory, we can handle the fact that some people do fail to fully believe, that, that they walk away from Christ. We, we know that that's, an, an, that's a thing that happens theoretically that's out there. But what shakes us pretty often is when it's somebody who's close to us and we never saw it coming. It's not so much that, that someone walked away from Christ. We expect that reality, but we're always shocked at who it is who walks away. And that can be one of the things that, that really shakes us. And I, probably any of us who've walked with Christ for a long time have had people who've influenced us for Christ, who are now saying that they're not Christians, close friends who we, we felt like we were locking arms with and following Jesus with, who are now saying they're not Christians. And, and it's not so much that people do walk away, it's who walks away that, that can shake us. Like I know when I was in college, the, the soundtrack of my college years were from the band Cademan's Call, a Christian band in, in the 90s, and it Sounds cheesy when you listen to it now, but it wasn't then. It was awesome then. And it was their music that was really shaping me. And, um, but their lead singer who wrote a lot of their songs and to this day who wrote like my favorite album of hymns, Derek Webb, um, has renounced his faith. And so here's this guy who shaped me, but now is saying that he's not a Christian anymore. And, and that can be a, a shaking thing. I know that my closest friend in high school, um, I mean, we were accountability partners. We would meet every week. We would talk about Jesus. We were in each other's weddings. We were as close as you could be. Um, today would say that he's not a follower of Christ. And those are the shaking things. It doesn't surprise us that people walk away. It surprises us who walks away. And sometimes it's only in the post-mortem when you look back that you can see some things that maybe were hints that that person didn't really believe. You see some things that stand out a little bit uh, as a warning. And Judas did have those. During the, the week before Holy Week, some people held a dinner for Jesus. And, and at that dinner was Lazarus that Jesus had raised from the dead. And Martha, who did all the work, a woman named Mary, and, and Judas was there. And so they're there at this dinner, and I'm sure the occasion is a cool one. Lazarus has been raised from the dead by Jesus, and he says, we really got to do something to say thank you. And they, they have Jesus over for dinner. And so, so he comes, and, and at that dinner, Mary famously took out expensive ointment worth a year's wages, and she poured it all out on Jesus' feet, and she washed his feet with her hair. And it was this moment of worship and thanksgiving, and Jesus said that that whole thing was an anointing to prepare for his burial. But looking back, something pretty strange happened at, when, when she was doing that. In John chapter 12, verse 4, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
So the other people who are watching this see this act of humility and worship. They can't believe how much devotion there is that she's pouring out a year's wages on Jesus' feet. But Judas is watching this whole thing, and he's ticked. He thought that that ointment should have been sold, and it should have been put to a better use. It should have been used for a higher purpose. It should have been given to the poor. Now, caring for the poor is not a sign that somebody is Judas. In fact, in in the book of Galatians, when there's a lot of controversy among the early church about a number of things, one big thing that they agreed upon was in Galatians 2.10. It says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So care for the poor is an essential element of Christian living. But but looking back at where Judas could have gone wrong, there was that time when he seemed to say that caring for the poor was more important than Jesus himself at that dinner. To some degree, to Judas, the worship of Jesus wasn't worth this kind of lavish expense. Something else should have been prioritized over Jesus. And obviously, this sounded pretty pious at the time. It just seems like he cared about the poor. But but looking back, it's like, Judas, do you not get who Jesus is? And we need to be careful of this. I think there's a lot of theology that says that social activism takes priority over the preaching of the gospel and leading people to a saving knowledge of Jesus. There's a theology that says that that all that matters are the good things that we do socially and bringing people to Jesus is somehow a waste. It's a theology that says this should have been sold and given to the poor. And we have to be very careful of not allowing our causes to shape our Christianity, but instead allowing our Christianity to shape our causes. What will often happen is that people will say, well, Christians should care about justice, which is absolutely true, but then they'll put justice over Christ. Sometimes what will happen is is that we'll say we should be pursuing justice as Christians, but then we'll allow justice to be defined not by the revelation of God that says a lot about what's just and what's not just, but by the culture around us. And then we'll start to evaluate everything by that secular justice lens, including our Christianity. And then inevitably, since we're looking at it through the, the wrong lens, our Christianity won't measure up to every contemporary standard for justice so we'll chuck our Christianity. To be a Christian means that the primary lens through which we view all things is Jesus Christ and his gospel and his scriptures. The word canon, which we use to refer to the scripture, means a measuring rod. And, And as Christians, our rod that we measure things by is the scripture. But often we'll be tempted to measure Christianity by some other standard, by some other justice, some other law, some other moral system, And then if Christianity doesn't measure up, we deconstruct. Because all along, something else was our God, something else was our scripture, something else was ultimate. St. Augustine said, Christ is not valued at all unless he's valued above all. And Judas did have that moment when he seemed to say that Christ was less valuable than something else. But ultimately, for Judas, it really wasn't his concern for the poor that drove him anyway. In John chapter 12, verse 6, it says, He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So all along, and Jesus knew this, Judas was stealing. 
And so when Judas saw this woman pour out a year's wages on Jesus' feet, he faked some kind of interest in the poor, but in reality what he wanted was to have a year's wages put in his money bag so he could skim some off the top. It wasn't that, Jesus, or that Judas loved the poor more than Jesus. It was that Judas loved money more than Jesus. And that may have been what he hoped to get out of Jesus to begin with. I mean, why would he follow Jesus? At the beginning, there was all this momentum. Jesus was the Messiah, so that would have meant that people were coming to him, there were crowds being drawn to him. And so for Judas, he's thinking, man, this Jesus guy looks like he's got a shot at being king. And if he's going to be king, that's a rocket ship that I want to be on. I want to attach myself to that guy, because that way when he's king, I get the power, I get the money, I get the authority, I get the rule. There's all kinds of things in it for me if I'll follow Jesus. So he starts following Jesus, it seems, but then Jesus starts talking about his death. And Judas, realizing that he wasn't going to get what he wanted to get out of Jesus, started looting what he thought was a sinking ship. Get the money out while you can. Get away from this thing. And probably a big reason for Judas' deconstruction is that Jesus didn't offer him what he thought Jesus would offer him anymore. He wasn't going to get rich and powerful off the Messiah if the Messiah was going to die. So he just starts stealing some money from their offerings. He, he decided to go after money by turning from Jesus. Now hold that thought, but look at the damage that is done by using Jesus to get something that's more important to us than Jesus. Using Jesus as a ladder to get something else. And for us as Christians, we've got to realize this. Jesus is not the means to something greater. Because there is nothing greater. So, for example, if you come to Jesus or you come to church because you think, well, Jesus then will provide me a spouse, what happens if he doesn't provide a spouse? Or what happens if you do find that spouse and it goes badly? Well, then what's the, the use for Jesus? Or if you think that, that I'll be faithful to Jesus and he'll provide for me and my business will thrive, if I'm faithful to Jesus, then I know he'll take care of me financially. If I'm faithful to Jesus, then I know that he'll heal all of my disease in, in this lifetime then what happens if he doesn't? Sometimes we'll, we'll treat Jesus as that ladder to some other thing that we treat as greater than Jesus. And we would never say it's greater than Jesus. We just practically act like it is. And then when Jesus fails to give us that thing, we, we walk away because it seems like he's the ladder to nowhere. So if Jesus is our means to wealth or to health or to friends or to power or to any other thing, then we're trying to turn to Jesus without turning from the God that we had before. And we can't do that. And when Jesus, in his grace, doesn't give us our idol and doesn't allow himself to be the ladder to, to some other thing we were going after, we might be really tempted to say, well, then what good is Jesus for me? We've got to remember as Christians that the reward for following Jesus is Jesus. We have him, and sometimes he gives health, sometimes he gives wealth, sometimes he gives spouses. He's a generous God. He does bless. He does answer our prayers. But if we have Jesus and we don't get anything else with him, we're rich. We're blessed. We're whole. And if we're using Jesus to get to something else that's ultimate to us, then we don't realize who Jesus is. We don't realize his surpassing worth. Judas certainly didn't. In fact, the worth of Jesus to Judas was about 30 pieces of silver. 
And so Luke chapter 22, we pick up the story, and now it's, it's Wednesday of Holy Week. Uh, Luke 22, verse 1, it says, Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money, So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So all along, these Jewish leaders wanted to put Jesus to death. Jesus had been challenging their power and authority for three years. Jesus had a following. He he was a big threat to them. So so they're looking for a way to to put Jesus to death, but at the same time, they fear the crowds. The crowds love Jesus. And so now if these leaders come in and put Jesus to death in a very visible way, then the crowds are going to be like, oh my goodness, we can't follow these leaders anymore, and it'll undermine their authority. So they're looking for an opportunity to somehow take Jesus out, but to do it quietly. And so Satan enters Judas. It wasn't just that Judas got pretty evil and Satan-like at this point. It wasn't that Judas developed a satanic attitude says that Satan entered him. Now, obviously, Judas hadn't been a good guy all along, and then all of a sudden he was possessed by by Satan. It's not like he had been following Christ really closely from a heart level and then, then became possessed. He had been a thief. He had been against Jesus in his heart. But then who Judas was grew. The evil that was in him grew. And Satan saw that people were looking for this opportunity to put Jesus to death, and he came in. Look at the irony here. Judas, the one who had been sent by Jesus to cast out demons, is now possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. This is another caution for us, that that evil in us grows. It's actually true that evil and righteousness both grow. That, That what's evil in us, if it's not repented of, grows into something grosser and worse. It doesn't just stay neutral. And it's also true of what's good in us. Uh, Galatians 5 talks about the things that grow in us being the fruit of the Spirit. So there are good things in us that grow too. But here's Judas, who was evil. He was false. He was a thief. And then Satan entered. The evil that was in him grew. He had that love of money that maybe first made him follow Jesus, thinking that Jesus would make him rich. That grew into something that made him steal money out of the money bag all along during the time of their ministry. And then in comes Satan, and then he goes out to negotiate with the temple rulers for just the right price to turn Jesus in, and it was 30 pieces of silver. So that evil that was in him grew. And he ends up selling Jesus for what's probably not a ton of money, probably about a month's wages or so. It was the same amount of money that you had to pay if your ox accidentally gored the servant of another person under God's law. So it wasn't just a life-changing amount of wealth. It was about a month's worth of money. But it was the last little bit that Judas thought that he could get out of Jesus. He'd stolen all he could, and now this was going to be the last of it. So he strikes a deal. He receives his pay. And then they eat the Last Supper together. And John describes it this way in John 13, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, 
rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So Jesus gathers all the the twelve together for the most solemn and intimate of, of his moments with them, and he institutes the Lord's Supper. He knows that he's about to die. He knows what Judas will do. And when he gets them all together, he doesn't excoriate Judas. He doesn't level Judas. He doesn't own Judas right there in front of all the other disciples. He doesn't mock Judas. He doesn't mistreat Judas. Jesus dresses himself like a slave, washes the feet of all of his disciples, including Judas. Jesus serves Judas right up until the end. Even though he knew who he was, he knew what he was going to do, he knew that for 30 pieces of silver, Judas was going to be handing Jesus over to be killed, and Jesus washed his feet. So Jesus apparently didn't live by the rule that you're supposed to cut all the toxic people out of your life and only surround yourself with people who are cheering you on. He, he didn't do that. He loved Judas, knowing who Judas was and what Judas was up to. And we might read that and think, yeah, well, that's Jesus. I mean, that's him. No way that I'm going to do that. I'm going to cut all those people out of my life who might be burdensome and who might drag me down. But God doesn't let us get away with that. In fact, if you go to John 13, verse 12, it says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus washes the feet of his greatest betrayer. And then he says to us, I've given you an example. We're called to do similar things. Can we really say that we're obedient followers of Jesus if we don't spend any time with difficult people? If we don't seek to wash the feet and serve people who are not giving back, people who are not being faithful, people who are not living right? Jesus served Judas. And he said that he did the whole thing as an example to us. If you go to Luke thirteen twenty one. It says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So again here, Satan enters Judas. He probably entered Judas in Luke 22, left to work with some other people, enters Judas again. 
And he enters right at that moment when Jesus hands him the bread dipped in the wine. And this whole thing represents the body and the blood of Jesus. And so Jesus is symbolizing here that he is offering himself to Judas right up until the end. And let's catch this. Let's look at the grace of Jesus here. Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Judas is about to turn in Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and Jesus is giving himself to him. He's serving him. He's offering him the bread and the wine which represents the body and blood of Christ. He gives himself to and serves this evil man. And this is good news for us, that that while we're still interested in Christ, he's serving us and offering himself to us. And look at this opportunity that, that Judas has. He's being offered Christ. But he turns and he runs away from Jesus, the light of the world, off into the night. So then Jesus goes and he prays with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're falling asleep and only Jesus stays awake to pray. And then in comes Judas with the soldiers that, that he's leading to Jesus. This is Luke 22, verse 47. It says, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And so with a kiss, Judas betrays the Lord. So Jesus knew not only the agony of the cross, but he knew the agony of the betrayal of his closest friend. Which had all been predicted. David wrote about this in Psalm 41. Psalm 41, 9, he says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So here's that deep betrayal happening to Jesus. One of his closest friends that he had given the bread and the wine to sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 27, verse 1, it says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed, and he went away and hanged himself. So Judas changed his mind, but he changed his mind too late. The deed was done. Jesus was off to the cross. There was no turning back now. So he threw the money into the temple, and he left there and and hanged himself. Now, if you read the account of Judas' death in the book of Acts, it says that Judas fell in a field, and his bowels gushed out. And so both are true. He, he hanged himself, and at some point he fell, or the rope broke, and his bowels gushed out. And Peter says this about it in Acts chapter 1, verse 15. It says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and fell headlong and he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
so that the field was called in their own language a caldama, that is, field of blood. For it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So Judas's bowels gushed out in the field of blood. And it's just a tragic end to a tragic life. Someone who was so close and knew so much and was offered so much by the Lord traded it for some cash. And by the time he tried to take it back, it was too late. Now, according to the book of Acts, all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem heard about it, that this one who rejected Jesus was disemboweled out in a field of blood, and everybody heard about it, it says, in their own language. So this was the story that everybody was telling. Everybody heard about Judas. Judas was serving as a warning to all of them. And it really was a historical warning to them and also a warning to us. In some previous passages, Jesus had warned that, that pretty soon Jerusalem was going to be judged and destroyed and because they had rejected Jesus. Uh, he had warned about what would happen. There was a date coming in 70 AD when the city of Jerusalem was going to be sacked and destroyed. And there's one historian named Josephus who wrote about that time, and he said that when a lot of the Jews who were living in Jerusalem noticed that their city was being destroyed, they wanted to smuggle out some of their gold. And so they started swallowing their gold coins so that they could leave the city with those intact and so they wouldn't get it taken away. And when the Romans caught wind of this, when they were catching the Jews who were trying to escape from the city, um, the Romans were actually cutting them open to try to find the gold coins in their stomach. And, and so historically, Judas's blood spilling was a little bit of a warning to them. Like, here's what happened to Judas, and here's what's going to happen to you. But also, it's a warning to us. All throughout the Bible, you see that spilled blood, blood speaks. You see it in the very beginning of the Bible when Cain kills Abel, and then God says that Abel's blood is crying out to him in Genesis 4.10. That spilled blood is saying something. And now Judas's blood is spilled, and that's spilled as a warning to Jerusalem of what would become of all those who would reject Jesus, and then it speaks to us as well. This is important because I think in our culture, we tend to treat the deconstructors, the people who are leaving the faith, as heroes or as victims. And honestly, sometimes one of the things that leads people to leave the faith is because they've been the victims of of people who've claimed to be Christians doing horrible things. Um, They've asked hard questions, and that is a good thing. But Judas's blood serves as a warning that if the Bible is true, if the story of Jesus is true and we reject it, there are dire consequences. Which means that we shouldn't walk away flippantly, for sure. I mean, obviously, I don't think we should turn from Jesus at all, but if, if you've been around the faith for a while, and you're starting to think of leaving the whole thing behind, Judas's blood does speak a word of warning. If Christianity is true, it is a scary thing to walk away from it. So, so you owe it, your, owe it to yourself to meet with wise Christians who know the Lord, who know his word, who've walked with him for a long time, Meet with pastors, meet with people to try to get your questions answered. At least give it that shot, because it is a serious thing to walk away from Christ. But we've got to end on good news, because there, there's more spilled blood that speaks in Scripture than just the blood of, of Judas. This is Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 22. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, into innumerable angels in festal gathering, into all the assembly of the firstborn who are enthroned, in, enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, 
to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So Jesus' blood speaks a better word. I mean, the blood of Judas speaks a word of warning that if you love something more than you love Jesus, it can take his place in your life and it'll destroy you. His blood speaks as a warning that, that what's evil that's in you will grow if you let it. That if you cling to Jesus' free religion of do's and don'ts and don't turn to him, it will lead to, to death in the end. But Jesus' blood speaks a better word. That when you do come to him, his blood is a cleansing for sin. It absorbs the wrath of God on your behalf. And if today you're, you're ready to turn away from him, it's almost like you're Judas at the Last Supper. Jesus has dipped the bread in the wine and he's handing it to you and he's saying, take, eat. This is my body that was shed for you. This is my blood that was spilled for you. And if you'll receive Jesus instead of running from him, then you can continue to live with confidence that all of your sin, the betrayals, the disobedience, everything that you've done has been covered by his blood that speaks a better word. So there's good news. It's good news that that for all those who turn to Jesus with weak faith or with strong faith, there's a cleansing for sin, and it's a real one that lasts. There's also a warning that if we'll turn from that, there is nothing else for us. There is no other hope of forgiveness than the blood of Jesus. There is no other hope for eternal life than the blood of Jesus. And so, so the blood of Judas is a reminder that we need to cling to Christ because he is our only hope. So let's pray. Uh, Father, um, well, we thank you for the warnings in this text. Thank you for the warning that Judas' blood speaks to all who would reject you, especially after having been close and learning from you and experiencing life with your people. Thanks for presenting to us that warning. But thank you beyond that for presenting to us the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the word that the blood of Jesus speaks, that today, if we hear your voice and repent, we'll be forgiven. That you've paid it all. That if we turn to you, we can be freed and forgiven for our doubts, for our sins, for the ways that we've betrayed you, the ways that we've denied you. You offer a sure and complete forgiveness through the blood of Christ. So we thank you for that gospel. We pray that we would turn today from sin and unbelief and turn to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for our forgiveness. And I pray especially for those here today whose faith is wavering, who are barely hanging on, that you'd use the blood of Judas as a word of warning and that you would use the blood of Jesus as a word of grace. That there is forgiveness. There is hope. There is life everlasting in Christ. So Holy Spirit, we just pray that you'd work in our hearts to increase our faith so that we might cling to Jesus and to Jesus alone. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.